more about Jesus from his word, I invite you to turn with me, if you will, to John, John chapter 17, John 17, and we're going to continue this section where Jesus prays for his disciples. We call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus, as we've talked about it somewhat. Last week, I introduced this to greater detail. The first part of this prayer in chapter 17 is for his glory, for Christ's glory, certainly to be manifested in his saints. And then the focus turns then to the disciples in particular and his prayer for them. And to understand this prayer, I emphasize the idea that Jesus Christ is functioning as a high priest. This is his high priestly prayer, if you will, for his disciples. The high priest in the Old Testament covenant with Israel prayed on behalf of the people of God. And he mediated on their behalf. That was his primary duty was on the day of atonement. And when only the high priest and the high priest alone could go into that was, which was designated as the most holy place, the very throne room of God, he could come in there once a year on the day of atonement and bring with him two things. First, an entrance with prayer and, and then reemerge again with an entrance of blood. And that symbolized what is happening here at this very hour. Christ is bringing the prayers to God. He's going into the most holy place. In just a few hours, he will return with his blood, his own blood. It is being fulfilled. This is very significant and it should be in our mind as we read through this prayer. Hebrews 10:19 describes this benefit that we have because of Christ Jesus who functions as our high priest. I'll read it for you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we would then stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Here, God's people have a connection to God and a solidarity then with one another. That's the gathering together, the encouraging together, the fellowshipping together more and more as you see what that day when you will be face to face. All of this is brought about by Jesus Christ and his very blood. It's a blessed condition. This is reserved for those for whom Christ is mediating. This is a unique and a special benefit. And this is why the preacher in Hebrews makes this emphasis here. Just as the high priest in Israel 
only mediated for Israel, the 12 tribes engraved on his breastplate, and so Christ, the high priest, mediates for his own. Are you in Christ? He is mediating for you. What a beautiful picture this is. In fact, the psalmist, and I would say in a messianic way, I'm sorry, Isaiah in a messianic way would say uh, this concerning us, behold, this attitude that God would have towards his people, behold, I have engraven you on my hands. And Christ will bear the very marks on his hand of his blood sacrifice for his people throughout eternity. What a beautiful picture. Christ, our great high priest. Well, we should hear what he would have to say. Our focus this morning really will be on just verse 11. And given the time that we have, but I'll read it in its broader context, beginning at verse 9. So I'm in John 17, beginning at verse 9, and I'll read through verse 18. Here Christ prays this. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for granting us a glimpse of this glorious prayer given by our great high priest, Jesus Christ, for his disciples, which are applicable to all who follow Christ. I pray that we would hear and heed these very words today. May Christ's prayer be abundantly answered among your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of outline, just briefly in this, at least how I am structuring this text, verse 9 through 18, there are various categories of emphasis. I've mentioned six that I would organize. First is Christ's glory, verse 9, and we talked about that last week, that his glory will be manifested in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Great way to live every day, thinking about how could Christ be manifested in my life. 
Christ prayed for that. May his prayer be answered. Secondly, which we're going to focus on today, is found in verse 11. And here is this prayer specifically, union with God. What does that look like? Union with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And then we'll pick it up and maybe individually, maybe combined together. I'm not sure. We'll see how things unfold in days ahead. But an emphasis on eternal security, verse 12. An emphasis on the joy of Christ in you, verse 13. And an emphasis on sanctification, verses 14 through 17. And finally, a call for his disciples to go on mission, equipped like Christ to go forward and uh, share the gospel. We'll focus on verse 11 today. This second topic, as I see it, he prays for the disciples in, with their connection to God, if you will. This connection with God involves, of course, their solidarity with one another. Not just with God, but that is primary, to, to be in union with God through Christ. But it overflows into the union that they have with one another. That union that we would have with God and ultimately with one another comes about through this prayer and this sacrifice. It is brought about by Jesus Christ himself. Now, as I look at this verse 11, and I put some notes here on the back just in case I lose you along the way so you can kind of follow a bit, it begins really with Jesus identifying a problem within his prayer. He's not in the world. He's ascending, and the disciples are not. So that creates a problem, if you will, or at least he identifies one. The solution is found a little later on in this prayer, and I would suggest to you that this prayer has to do with loyalty or faithfulness, could be the word, to God, and unity among one another and with God. All of that is premised on this key phrase, Holy Father, right there in the middle. That is how this will come about, it's through the Holy Father. And so that's the way I've organized it uh, for you to follow along, if you will. First of all, let's look at this problem. Jesus identifies the problem he's going to depart. He said to his disciples all along that he's going. He's departing. It, the time of his departure is, is at hand. Notice the phraseology here at the beginning, at the end of this first section, I am no longer in the world, and then he says, I am coming to you. So I'm not in the world, and then I'm coming to you. This first part, I'm not in the world, well, he was still kind of there praying. I think the emphasis is a recognition of the fact that his earthly ministry, this three-year public ministry, and even this time of private ministry to his disciples, all of that now is coming to an end, right? It's just a few hours away from his sacrifice on the cross. He's no longer in the world. He's no longer personally engaging with one another. He had gone about the world preaching the gospel, 
calling people to repent, calling people to believe, teaching like no one else taught, incredible clarity in what he said, incredible profundity. They were astonished at his teaching. And beyond that, all the miracles that he performed, amazing. So much so that even his detractors could say nothing of it other than God had to be with you. Some tried to accuse him of being empowered by Satan, but demonstrated, of course, that Satan wouldn't go against his own house in that regard. No one could do what Christ did. No one could say what Christ did. And, but now it is coming to an end. The time is over. The incarnate God, think about it, walking among humanity for a point in time, that's it. Never happened this way before and never will occur again. This is a momentous time in which he is no longer engaged in the world in the way that he would be engaged. It isn't the fact that God has abandoned the world or is out of the world. We'll jump ahead, you know, he's going to send his disciples to fulfill. But Christ himself is no longer engaged in that way. His ministry will appear to many to be an absolute failure as he will die in just a few hours. But all of this was purposeful. All of it fulfilling scripture that was prophesied. All of it fulfilling all that God has planned, even to the point of his betrayer, which you read some in this text here, fulfilling the scriptures. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, <coughs> it is for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what God intended all along. Jesus Christ came, took on flesh to die for his people for their sin. Peter would say it this way, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by his wounds that we are healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus Christ became the cursed one, the one to hang on the tree, that indeed we might become blessed. Blessed in him, amen. This is what Christ's purpose is. He came to this earth. He, he preached repentance and faith. He came to his own, John would tell us in John 1.11, but his own people did not receive him, but some did. And all who did receive him, who believed on his name, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. You don't have a right to be a child of God. Let us grant it to you by Christ our Lord, and it is through repentance and faith. They're born again, he would call them, their state of being, born again, not by blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God. All of this purposeful, all of this is Christ, all of this is culminated in this hour in which now all of the preaching, all of the miracles is coming to an end. The hour has come. 
and the world in response to the greatest messages ever given, the greatest teaching ever given, the greatest demonstration of a life of absolute righteousness and perfection, a demonstration of incredible miracles that have never been seen before, their response was to reject the Lord of glory. It shows two things to me. One, their absolute ignorance. Two, their insolence in their rebellion against God. There could have never been a better communicator of truth than Jesus Christ, could there? God incarnate. And yet, they reject him. Don't be surprised if you go about doing good, preaching the gospel, and calling people to repentance and faith, that your message would fall on ignorant and insolent ears. (laughs) The best among us had the same reaction. And that's the problem. And Jesus knows that. He's going, he's leaving, he's disengaged, if you will, with the world and the public ministry, and now even the private ministry has ended because he will ascend to the Father. And when he does, the disciples are, what? In the world, it says in our text in verse 11. They are in the world. That's the second part of the problem. Jesus is now gone, and they're left alone. If you remember just previous chap, couple chapters, chapter 15, you might want to look there. Jesus emphasized this in his teaching, that he is now praying. This is profoundly on his mind. As his disciples are left alone, he knows the condition that they're going to be in. He has experienced it personally, the absolute rejection. In verse 18 of chapter 15, he teaches and reminds and admonishes the disciples and some of his very last teaching that he gives them. He tells them this. If the world hates you, verse 18 of chapter 15, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's the idea. Keep that in your mind. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We'll emphasize this more in his prayer for sanctification that, he, that he'll give in chapter 17. But nevertheless, recognize this problem and this di- dilemma. Here they're left in the world, but because Christ has chosen them out of the world, they're not of the world. That is, there's some sort of cultural disconnect. And it isn't even the fact that you might irritate someone or cause certain problems. Christ did no evil. There was no reason for Christ to be rejected at all. And he says, remember that I said to you, verse 20, a servant isn't greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. That is, those who do respond in repentance and faith. That's the positive side. You know, it's not just all negative that you'll just be totally rejected. The great news is Christ has people all over the place, right? So, yeah, you're going to go and to a sea of humanity, preach great truth, and for the most part, walk away 
with rejection. But you know what? There's one or two out there that will hear it. And it is through that means, the preaching of the gospel, that they will come to repentance and faith. And what a glorious thing for even one to come to the recognition of indeed Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the the pattern, and and Christ knows this, and he wants to prepare his disciples for this. They're in the world. It's a reflection that the world is a hateful place, and they hate Christ, and therefore they'll hate you, and they really don't have an excuse for it. Notice verse 21. They will do this on account of you because of my name. Because they don't know him who sent me. That is, they're ignorant of who God really is. That's why they hate you. If I hadn't come, verse 22, and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. It isn't saying that they would have been innocent and, and so forth. It is that now, listen, as I mentioned before, this is the greatest preaching ever preached. This is the greatest person ever to walk on the face of the earth. These are the greatest miracles ever done. There is no excuse. There's no excuse then, and guess what? Right now, there's no excuse for you. He has already come. He's finished. He didn't need to spend three years. He could have spent three minutes, three seconds. He's very gracious to spend that much time. And there is no excuse. There is no excuse for their sin. There's no excuse today. We have the absolute full revelation of Jesus Christ. And beyond that, it is written down in a book that all of us have. That you can very easily go to the internet and pull up the whole thing. It's, it's an amazing thing in history, and even now, that you can have so much of this. Done in various, various uh, versions in, in English. Recorded, and you can listen to it. Uh, What people wouldn't give for what we have even this day. What a great treasure that you have. Pick it up. Treasure it. Read it. Live it. Learn it. They have no excuse. Christ incarnate has come. And so he said, whoever hates me hates my father also. In other words, if you reject Jesus Christ, you you have no God. Because there is only one God. And Christ is the one who makes him known. If I hadn't done, verse 24, among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't have been guilty of sin, but now they have seen and both and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be filled, fulfilled. They hated me without excuse. Even in the midst of their ignorance and their insolence, God has a purpose in it all. It will lead to the cross. It will lead to the sacrifice, the atonement for sin for those that are in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't want to be held to a standard outside of their own desire. That's the problem. You hear them say little catchphrases like, my body, my choice. Really? Did you create yourself? Are you sustaining your life even right now? And even more so for those that are in Christ. 
Paul would particularly say, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All men are called to glorify God in their body. For those that are regenerate, we recognize that truth of that revelation and certainly respond to it. Truth for the world, that in that way I'm speaking world in the sense that Christ is, is using it here, you might think of it as the cultural, the, the mindset of the people in general, the fallen world, the world that is influenced directly by Satan and demonic thought. Their truth, what they perceive as truth, is centered on themselves. And not recognizing that their mind is flawed. It's fallen. It, if it sees truth, it sees it in blurry forms. Not clearly. Paul would tell the church at Rome that those that reject God, they, they know him verse 21 of chapter 1 in Romans, but they don't honor him as God and don't give him thanks. They don't really recognize God for who he is. They, they know him, but they know him because of the creation. They know him because of the conscience. They know them because of what has been communicated through divine revelation and particularly now through Jesus Christ our Lord. There could be no better. So there is no excuse but they don't honor him. That is, they don't glorify him. They don't give thanks for every breath they take. And so what happens to those who will not honor God, who will not glorify him, who will not give him thanks? Well, they become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. It's a greater judgment. There is um, a greater judgment to hear the words of Christ and then reject them. It hardens the heart. It is a judgment of darkening condition. The condition of the world then is, is futile. You can't get there from here. It's foolish in the sense of all the efforts that's put forward are those things that are all temporal, that will all pass away. That's what's emphasized. It is fatally flawed in the end. Well, Jesus has great concern for his beloved and he prays for them. But he prays for them on a solid foundation. And that's the premise that I think all our prayers should be based on and why one reason I like to open with our Father. Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. Think of the words, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Oh, beloved, meditate and memorize that prayer. Think through what Christ has taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer for for the glory of God to be fully manifested, but it is a recognition of indeed who God is, compacted in this little phrase, Holy Father is all of that. That's what's intended here, I'm convinced. And he prays, Holy Holy Father, there's, there's two aspects of God in the in that little phrase, holy, and then father. Father speaks, of course, of his eminence and holy of his transcendence. God is father. He is related to us, eminent, as we might say, and that is, theologically speaking, that's talking about he is actually involved in the world. There, there are many who think that God somehow created this world and just let it go to do its own thing. There is nothing that happens outside his will. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will be accomplished. It is a great invitation to pray that every day and be a part of that process, but it is, it is being fulfilled. It is being demonstrated at this very time in Jesus Christ and all he did and all that everyone else did. All of it was according to God's will to accomplish what God had promised to do. Even, even the betrayal by Judas. It fulfilled scripture because God is in absolute control. But he's involved in the world. And we lose sight of that at times. Because we can't see him, perhaps. And we're not thinking in that that term. It's an amazing thing. It isn't just that God created the world, but he continues it. And it wouldn't continue without him. I don't have time to read all of this article, but I was intrigued a lot of times by some of the things that I read and find out about that are just amazing. And one of the things that um, amazed me this weekend and caused me to respond in honor and thanksgiving to God is a simple little thing like how muscles contract. Now you think I'm crazy. (laughs) I can't begin to explain all that to you. But I was reading a scientific book on body science for sports exercise and so forth, and they were trying to explain this little, just this one little aspect of how muscles contract. And one part of it, just one little slice of it, is the fact that how they're fueled. And they're fueled by this adenosine triphosphate, or it's abbreviated ATP. And if you read these scientific books, they start abbreviating everything because the words are so long. But it amazes me how they continue to identify all these different factors. You know, to categorize them and they label them. And, and this is different than that. And that's, it's so complex and amazing. But what's beyond that is how they all work together. And at least in this book, and this is their discovery up to this point, which they may add more information later, but just to contract your muscles, there are four different ways 
That the power can come in. In other words, redundant systems, systems in which uh, you, if, you, if you don't get that ability from one, it can come from another. And if it doesn't come from that one, it comes from this one, and then the next. And then all four of them work together and replenish themselves. There's a certain amount of ATP that's just there but in your muscles, but it doesn't last long. And then there's this whole system known as phosphocreatine, which changes, and they call it donating, 1-ADP to 1-ATP under certain anaerobic conditions. So they go on like this forever, talking about how this works. And then the whole system is reversible to go back and replenish the ADP from ATP. A third system is called glycolysis, which is a metabolic reaction which produces two molecules of ATP through the conversion of glucose into pyruvate and water and NADH in the absence of oxygen. You got that? I'm not done. (laughs) Because it produces lactic acid and then it uses that and converts it in certain conditions to to recycle all of this. A a fourth level is cellular respiration. While the pyruvate generated through glycolysis can accumulate, accumulate, sorry, accumulate. I'm getting too fast trying to get through this. I'd really rather teach you the Bible, but but this can help us think about God. To form lactic acid, it can also be used to generate further molecules of ATP. Mitochondria in the muscle fibers can convert pyruvate into ATP in the presence of oxygen through the Krebs cycle, generating an additional 30 molecules of ATP. You'll be tested on this later. When I'm listening to that, which is about blowing my mind, and I didn't give you the half of it, it's like, wow. That's just to do this? Contract a muscle so that I can lift something up? What an incredible design. And that's just what we have discovered and know about. There's much more, you know. God is intricately involved. And anyone with a rational mind or thought to come up with the idea of, oh, I don't know, this just happened? They call that theory, what was that, Eva, Eva, yeah, evolution. It just evolved out of nothing, and it's going nowhere, and it ends in nothing. What blind, dark, futile, fatal mind would come up with any idea of that? What even rational person, when you look at one simple aspect of a, of a, uh, of a physical body, just moving a muscle, would ever conclude that? Beyond that, there's revelation in which God has then disclosed all of that of his involvement in the world. Through divine revelation, we know clearly that Jesus created all things by the word of his power, John 1.1, that he continues all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3, and that he controls all things by the word of his power, Ephesians 1.11. Through divine revelation, the revelation of God incarnate who came in flesh, told us these very things that, well, observationally, we know God. 
but don't honor him or give him thanks. And thirdly, this demonstration of that is through redemption. It is through a regenerate heart, personal relationship with God, the Father, that these things have become known and we recognize that God is intimately involved with his people and it is through Christ we recognize and can call God our Father. Paul would tell the church of Galatia, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might, so that we, should I say, might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. God is our father. He's a father in the sense of the created world, the continuing of the world, but through Christ our Lord, adopted as children of him, we can cry out to him as father. But don't ever miss the fact that he always remains holy. He is our father, but we call him holy. This, in, this indicates his transcendence, if you will. God is always transcendent. He is always a cut above the rest, if you will. Holiness is the chief aspect of his uh, description, if you will, of his character, his characteristics. R.C. Sproul wrote it this way, which, by the way, I highly recommend his little book. It's very small, called The Holiness of God. If you haven't read it, encourage you to do so so you can think in clearer terms of this aspect but here's here's a paraphrase from some of his material holiness is a characteristic of God's nature at his very core of his being only as we encounter God in his holiness is it possible for us to see ourselves as we really are the view of God presented in Isaiah 6 leaves an individual with a deep sense of awe at the greatness of his majesty. To be indifferent is impossible for the Christian when confronted with the holiness of God. The practical life of the Christian flows from the vision of God in his holiness. There is only one attribute that is ever raised to the third degree of repetition in Scripture. There is only one characteristic of Almighty God that is communicated in the superlative degree from the mouths of angels where the Bible doesn't simply say that God is holy or even that He is holy, holy, but that He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible doesn't say that God is mercy, 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 love, 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 justice, 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 wrath, 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 but that he is holy, holy, holy. This is a dimension of God that consumes his very essence, and when it's manifest to Isaiah, we read at the sound of the voices of the seraphim in the doorpost, the thresholds of the temple itself shook and began to tremble. Do you hear it? inanimate, lifeless, unintelligible parts of creation in the presence of the manifestation of the holiness of God had the good sense to be moved. And how can we be made in his image, be indifferent or apathetic to his majesty? Indeed, God is Father, intimately involved in creation at all times, 
personally involved with those that are connected through Christ, and yet he is always holy, holy, holy. Well, finally, we'll get to this prayer in verse 11 of John 17. The prayer is that they would, that God, this Holy Father, would keep them. Notice verse 11 of chapter 17. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. That phrase that we have in the ESV is translated in other versions. The NIV, for example, it says, keep them by the power of your name. I'm going to spare you the Greek grammar aspects here, but it could be translated either way. It could be this way. We have it here in the ESV. Protect them or keep them in your name. Or it could read grammatically, protect them by your name. So which is it? Keeping and protecting are both grammatical possibilities. And some commentators have said, well, maybe he's intending both. And that can occur sometimes, but I don't think so here. The context gives more weight to the idea of of keeping them. Keeping them because it corresponds with the analogy that Jesus gave in the next phrase when he says, the name which you have given me. Jesus was true, faithful, and loyal to all that the Father asked him to do. He always did the Father's will. Jesus was the faithful, the obedient, the submissive, the loyal to God's will. And so I would emphasize more here loyalty and faithfulness. That's the idea of the prayer. Keep them in your name in the sense, keep them faithful. Keep them loyal to that which you have given me, to which I have actually done. Keep them loyal. The disciples are in the world. The world's hostile, as we've already mentioned. They need to continue out these precepts of Christianity. But they're at odds with the world, and the world's going to hate him, hate them, as he's already mentioned. They're not going to win any popularity contests. And soon all of them, the disciples, will be killed save John. The world may love you in a moment, but begin to teach what Christ has taught, and it will put a wedge of truth that will split their skulls wide open. They'll be nice and friendly until it starts hurting. You need the prayers of Christ for you to be faithful in difficult times. But it is characteristic of, however, those that are in Christ, you understand. Faithfulness is a key characteristic. Loyalty is a key characteristic. I wrote down a few notes from text of Scripture. One, here you have Ephesians 1.1. Paul describes those that are at the church of Ephesus, you know how? as faithful in Christ Jesus. To the church of Colossae, he writes them a letter. And he calls them faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He exhorts the other apostles to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, Acts 11.23. 
He commends Timothy, his protege, as a faithful child in the Lord, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Tychius, Ephesians 6, 21. He describes him as his beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Epaphras in Colossians 1, 7, his beloved fellow servant, describing him, he says, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Onesimus in 4, 9 of Colossians, our, he describes him as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. In fact, Paul describing the minister's as apostles and fellow apostles, he said in 1 Corinthians 4, you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It is required of a steward to be what? You've heard it. To be faithful. To be found faithful. And Jesus finally would admonish the church particularly in Smyrna as he points out, a, a church that was going to receive great persecution and suffering in Revelation chapter 2. He says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you would be tested. And for 10 days, you're going to have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You will not be conquered and hurt by the second death. Jesus Christ is praying for the faithfulness of his servants. Can I tell you this right now? Jesus Christ is praying for your faithfulness and your loyalty. So, oh, I really want to be faithful to Christ, but I don't know if I can do it on my own. Can I give you an answer? You can't. You're going to need Christ. And let me point back to this very day the day of atonement, if you will, when Christ walks in with this bowl of incense and a coal off of that altar and he brings that prayer and lays that down, do you think that's not going to be answered? I look back on, on my life as a teenage boy and I came to Christ. I certainly haven't been perfect in all my actions, attitudes, affections, and whatnot. But I look back and I say, well, but I've remained faithful. I, I, I still love Christ. I still want to repent of my sin. I, I still recognize, it takes too, too long sometimes to recognize the error of my way and turn to him, but there is something inside that causes me to want to be loyal and faithful to the truth. It isn't because I'm really brilliant and can figure this out and no one else can. It isn't because just I'm, I'm, I'm just better than other people at doing that. No, I, I'm like Peter. He would say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing and act the wrong thing, but Christ loved him. And Peter loved Christ. We'll read more of that later, but let me tell you this right now. Recognize your high priest, Jesus Christ, is praying for you. There's one other thing that he's praying about. And we'll finish with this. Back in our text, in verse 11, in chapter 17. Not only he prays that God would keep him, that is, that they would continue in their loyalty and faithfulness to this truth, which they're going to need to do, 
Christ is not going to be there to monitor them, but they also need great unity. That they, notice the phrase as it finishes out in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. I do, I do think that this is primarily, it, it ultimately at least ends on this idea that uh, it is talking about a union with God, ultimately. Okay? But penultimately, it is that they would be one as well. It is unity among one another as, and it's, this is to the church, not to the world, right? That they would be one, that they would be unified, united in Christ, and that ultimately united with God. This is not a superficial unity in which we just pat one another on the back because this is a good and nice and friendly, appropriate thing to do in our culture and just being good and nice people. This is talking about a supernatural unity that comes about through the prayers of Christ. The world seeks to unite people through ideas and ideology. Things that are temporal and will not last. What our culture thinks is right and equitable now will not be right and equitable in days to come. Go read any history book. These people, at whatever time slice you take, they think that all that they were doing is right and good. You know, we're just standing now in a slice of history, and you ask all these people, yeah, they're all right and they're all wrong. Guess what's going to happen should the Lord tarry in a hundred years from now? You're going to have another group of people who look back. I can't believe they acted that way. Now, if you don't believe me, go ask Henry. He knows a lot about history. He can help you. God never changes. God never changes with time. His truth is eternal. It is not subjected to and related to whatever happens in time. He is the very measuring rod of truth. There are all kinds of barriers that are going to break down unity within the body of Christ. A great study would just be look at the apostles and who they were and their background. There have been books written on it. I, I highly recommend them. I already talked about Peter. He's kind of a wild character. His various aggressive actions. I mean, at one point he was going to try to chop off a head of a guy who was wanting to arrest Christ, take matters in his own hands. He said a lot of things that, that weren't right. One time, Jesus had to admonish him and said, Peter, that didn't come out of your mouth by God. That's the word of Satan. James and John both were called sons of thunder because they were kind of rough guys. In fact, one time, they wanted to bring down fiery judgment on the Samaritans. (laughs) I can identify with that. (laughs) Matthew and was a tax collector. He was a political sellout, by the way, right? 
This had been a communist, maybe. Simon is called Simon the Zealot. You know why? He was a political activist on the other side. How in the world do those two get together and be unified? You, you couldn't get much more on the different end of the perspective. It is through Jesus Christ who will bring about that unity. That is the answer to it. It isn't, can we all just superficially get along? Here's the deal. You can be supernaturally changed within your heart to where a tax collector and a zealot are one together in one body. It is through the regenerate heart that gives a new disposition in their life. It gives them a a mind of Christ in which each of them can then be conformed to and adjusted to. And as the tax collector adjusts his mind to Christ and as the zealot adjusts his mind to Christ, they find they both look a lot more like Christ and they then are one with each other. Paul would write to the church at Ephesus, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to conform you to Christ that is going to bring about great unity within the body of Christ. I've always said here, by the way, too, we are not looking for uniformity. We're looking for unity. I love the fact that there are different ages of people within this small body. Different perspectives on how culturally you you would fit in. That's fine. You know what? Those are peripheral things. You know what really ultimately should unite us? Our unity with Jesus Christ, not our uniformity in wearing the same color clothes, carrying the same objects, or, or you know, living in the same types of housing, eating the same types of foods, these kinds of things. That, that, that's all temporal of this world. What is eternal is Jesus Christ, and the unity that we're maintaining is this, the, that very spirit in the bond of peace. Paul will go on and remind the church at Ephesus simply this, there is one body. Obviously it has many members and they function in different ways. But ultimately there's one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all in all. The unity comes about through Christ. Our connection to God, our solidarity with one another has been brought about by these prayers of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And may his prayer be answered that we may be one even as he and the Father are one. Let us pray. Father, I do pray for Christ's prayer to be exemplified in this particular body. May you draw together those that have various 
interests and aspects and directions in life, but may we all have a unifying factor of Jesus Christ in our heart. May he be glorified, demonstrated in our own life more and more as we see the day approach. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Take a moment now privately to reflect on these very words.